In this journey back in time, I want us to be imagining what it would be like for a man who is about to have one of the greatest experiences in his life. This man has been uniquely selected to do something that no one else in the entire world will get the opportunity to do. Any guesses on what I'm talking about? I want us to briefly imagine what it would be like for the Jewish high priest to enter the holy presence of God on the Day of Atonement. I want you to think about what it must have been like in preparation and then in the moments leading up to and the very moment itself as he walks through that curtain into the Holy of Holies. If you're here with us and you're not familiar with the Jewish faith, the Day of Atonement is also what is called Yom Kippur. At least modern Jews call it Yom Kippur. This year it will be celebrated on September 22nd and September 23rd. It is the holiest day of the entire year for Jews for the past thousands of years. There are two main sources that we can look to to learn about what this day was like. The first is obviously the Old Testament and more specifically chapter 16 of Leviticus. The second resource we can read is a book called the Mishnah. It's a collection of books thousands of pages long, maybe even just as long as our Bibles in front of us, Old and New Testament combined. This book is a collection of Jewish traditions and teachings. So think our Bible has a collection of 66 books. This Mishnah has a collection of 60-some books. And one of those books, so imagine an entire book of the Bible being devoted specifically to the instructions for what should happen on the Day of Atonement for the priest. I say all that, that if we combine what we see in the Old Testament with the traditions of the Jewish faith, we'll start to see a picture of what it would be like to walk into the Holy of Holies. So let's take those two sources, let's bring them together, and let's walk with him on this journey. The first thing we need to imagine is not actually the Day of Atonement, it's the preparation the week before. It starts seven days before where he has to leave his house and live in the temple for the next seven days. This is so that he does not have any chance of having any uncleanness touch him or defile him before he goes into the temple. So seven days he spends prepping, praying, and performing priestly duties. Now imagine, what kind of nervousness might you feel as you have nothing else to think about or focus your attention on but just this one day that's about to happen? Let's fast forward to the night before. At sundown, he is instructed to have a light meal, and this would be his last meal until sundown the next day, for the Day of Atonement is a day of fasting, not just for the priests, but for all of Israel. The Mishnah says that they are supposed to stay awake the entire night reading the Hebrew scriptures. Have you ever pulled an all-nighter? My guess is you weren't reading the Jewish Hebrew scriptures to keep you awake. There's a good chance that you would not have been able to sleep if you were the priest, knowing what was about to happen anyway. When the morning came, he began the day with a private bath and the first of what would be five ceremonial washings. What's interesting about this is that every time a priest would do this ceremonial washing before he gives an offering sacrifice to the Lord, 
He would have to only wash his hands and feet, but on this day, because of its special importance, he would have to wash his entire body five times or more. In fact, by the time he was done, he would change his robes. Every time he changed his robes would be another bath, so depending on how many times he went in and out and changing his robes, add up all of these ceremonial washings from head to toe. As sun rises the next day, he would put on a plain white clothing, symbolizing what would need to be utter purity before the holiness of the God he was about to enter into his presence. Later, he would change into this normal priestly gown that you read about in the Old Testament where there's bells on it. And there's a linen wrapped around his waist. And I don't know if you're familiar with the idea behind the bells or the linen wrapped around his waist, but the people outside of the Holy of Holies is supposed to constantly be hearing the dingling of the bells. And if it goes quiet for too long, they're supposed to take that linen that's wrapped around his waist and all the way out of the door of the curtain and pull him out because he has dropped down dead. No one else was supposed to go in with him. No one else is allowed to go in with him ever. So they would know whether he died or not if the bells stopped ringing. And they weren't going to go in and try and get him because then they would drop dead so they'd have to drag him out by the linen. Can you just imagine? Put yourself in those shoes. I could only think that maybe, maybe if you've had a life or death threatening surgery that you know is about to happen where you're like, oh my dear Lord, I am about to face life or death, and you know it's coming. So imagine those seven days and the night before and staying up all night reading the scriptures and knowing that if at any moment you do not follow these regulations, your life is done. This is what I want you to feel for a moment, the sense of what must that have been like for this priest? In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, as it gives the explanations for the Day of Atonement, you'll see in the first five verses, it's a reminder right from the beginning, hey, remember these instructions, because do you know what happened to Aaron's sons when they offered fire before the Lord? Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's how the instructions began for the priest. Remember Aaron's sons. In verse 3 of chapter 16, a young bull and a ram was required before he ever enters into the Holy of Holies because he needs to have his sins forgiven before he comes into God's presence. In verse 5, it says that two male goats and a ram would be offered as the main sacrifice for all of Israel's sins for the last year. There would be many animal sacrifices made on this day, but these ones that I just outlined in verse 3 and 5 of chapter 16 are the main ones. First, for himself, for his own sins and his whole household. And then second, the sins of all the people of Israel. It would still be early in the morning when he would make his first entrance into that curtain of the Holy of Holies. Now, in case some of you are like, what, what's the Holy of Holies? The Holy of Holies would have been the third level of the temple. So think of the temple walls and you walk in, you are now standing in what is called the outer court. That's level one. Then inside of the outer court, there's an altar, and there's uh, other things going on, but then there's this room. And inside of this room, you enter the inner court. That's level two. And then inside of the inner court, inside of the outer court, is level three, where you step in to the Holy of Holies, 
the most holy place in all of the earth, where God's presence is known to dwell around some furniture called the mercy seat. So that's the picture here. Stepping into the outer court, a few more steps into the inner court, and then there's a curtain that separates from the inner court to the Holy of Holies. It would have been the early morning when he would make his first entrance to the Holy of Holies after making a sacrifice for his sins. He would put over his uh, ram offering and his bull offering his hands. And he would confess all of his sins for him and his household and then slaughter this animal and have its blood spilt. And this and this time only would he pray Yahweh's name. If you know anything about the Jewish faith, you know they would never speak the covenant name of God, which is called Yahweh. And they actually don't like it when people like me say it. Or you. But on this day, he was allowed to say it. In the normal prayers that we see in the Mishnah, he'd say it up to ten times. Once that was done, he would take two handfuls of burning coals and make his first steps into the Holy of Holies. The first thing he was supposed to do was lay down the coals by the mercy seat so that way it would be a fragrant incense to the Lord and so that the smoke would cover over the mercy seat and he would not see it face to face because if he did, he again would die. He would lay that down, he would then say a brief prayer, and then he would walk out. Now, as it's covered and the whole smoke is filling the room, he can then enter in again, this time taking the blood from the animal he just sacrificed and start spreading the blood seven times in front of the mercy seat. This for his own sins. He then walks out as he's done this. And then the rest of the day is a repeat of this sort of pattern, changing robes, going out, reading scriptures to the people of Israel, making sacrifices. At one point, there's a, a, a unique instance where they, they take two goats, like I mentioned, for the people of Israel. They cast dice or lots on the ground, and they figure out one of the goats is going to die, and one of them is going to be a scapegoat. And they pray over that scapegoat, and then that goat is led out into the wilderness. These are a little bit of the things that happen on the Day of Atonement. As the day ends, he would go home if he was still alive, and he would celebrate. It would be a joyful end of the day. Number one, because he's alive. I just had my life in my hands and just standing before the utter presence of God. I can't fall short in any way, and if I do, I'm done. And if he made it through, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that him and only him and Sometimes never again would he ever get. He made it. But the second reason for rejoicing is the whole purpose of the Day of Atonement is that the sins of the people have been forgiven. And they have made a connection and a forgiveness with the God that they have offended. Now why tell you this journey back in time several thousand years ago? Because from this point on in the book of Hebrews, as we've been studying for the last eight weeks until about chapter 10, so this will probably be several weeks, we will be considering mostly the connection between Jesus and the priest that we just talked about. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, we make a transition from some of the things that he was just talking about, about the day of Sabbath rest that is holding out a promise for us, and then to this idea of Jesus, our high priest. Would you look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14? If you're using the black Bibles around you, that can be found on page 1003. 
Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I want to briefly point out that here we see again this phrase, holding fast and persevering the confession that we first believed, and that this is again the primary theme and purpose of this book before you. The letter of Hebrews is written to mostly a Jewish audience as we think, assuming how much he talks about the Jewish faith. And it seems like what he's trying to help them understand is that Jesus Christ is the only way to their salvation. He is the only way to the rest that they can receive that we looked at last week. He is the only sacrifice. He is the only priest. If you reject Jesus, you have nothing else to turn to. So hold fast to Jesus. It says here that they had a confession. Let us hold fast this confession. So they want to believe and persevere in their belief till they die or until he returns. That's the purpose of the book of Hebrews. And he's going to use priest language in comparison to Jesus to help you understand why you should hold fast to this confession. But look at how he describes Jesus, our high priest, in verse 14. Since then... We have a great high priest. Why does he say this? Why does he say since then? Have we been talking about high priests? Well, in fact, yes, we have. If you just turn your eyes over to chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Same word, same idea that's being communicated here in chapter 4. So he's actually already brought this up, and he even uses this same word again in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So since then, he's he's brought this up. I'm bringing it up again. Let's unpack this a little further. That's maybe one idea for why he says since then. Another reason could be because he just talked about the Sabbath for two chapters. And at this moment, I was like, What's the connection between Sabbath and the priesthood of Jesus? Or the priesthood at all, and even in the Old Testament? Sabbath, priest. Then, I went back to Leviticus 16, the passage I just quoted, the Day of Atonement. The most important Sabbath day in the entire year was the Day of Atonement. The day when the priest would make sacrifice for all the people of Israel. They were not to work at all. So, Day of Atonement, priestly sacrifices, the most important one in the whole year? is connected with the Sabbath. That's one connection. The other connection is that the Sabbath, by definition, as we unpacked last week, is God and man one together again. It is the presence of man and God living in complete harmony and peace and love and enjoyment. It is God and man dwelling. Man with the presence of God. That's the Holy of Holies. That's The man entering in in the Old Testament. The only time that man could dwell with God in the Old Testament like that was the Day of Atonement. The day that the priest walked in and there was a picture of Genesis all over again. God and man living together in perfect harmony. Not being destroyed. Not being separated. Dwelling together. I think that's probably the theological connection that he then says, Since then we have a great high priest. Because he just said what? A very harsh word 
a very stern warning. Do not fall short of entering his rest. And if you're a Jewish person, you're like, how am I going to enter his rest? How am I going to enter into his presence if I don't have a priest, if I don't have a sacrifice? And the writer of Hebrews wants to make crystal clear, you have a priest. You have a sacrifice. So therefore, you can enter in and you can dwell with God like the Holy of Holies. That's the connection I think he's made from verse 14 from what we have just looked at last week and weeks prior. But notice one more thing before we get into some part two of this message. Not just any high priest. Notice in chapter 2, verse 17, he is called a faithful high priest. And right after calling Jesus a faithful high priest, he contrasts the faithfulness of Jesus to the faithfulness of Moses in chapter 3. Good word choice when you're about to talk about the faithfulness of Jesus. But here he uses the word great. He's not just any high priest. He's a great high priest. And remember, again, if we're talking to a Jewish audience and you're reading and thinking from a Jewish lens and you know that the word high priest by definition in the Hebrew is great priest. That's what the Hebrew word for high is. It's the word in Hebrew gadol. And that word means great. So put these together. If you're a Hebrew Jewish person, you would have understood that the high priest was a great priest, the great of all priests. But he adds another great before the great high priest. So he's the great, great priest. That's what he's saying here. Since then, we don't just have any priest. We have the great, great priest. He's the greatest of all priests. In other words, he's following right in line with everything he's been saying all along Hebrews. Jesus is the supreme and final and superior everything. The final and supreme angel, messenger. He is the final and supreme prophet. We don't need more prophets. We have Jesus. We don't need messengers to deliver the word. Jesus delivered the final and decisive word. We don't need another Moses. We have Jesus Christ, the one who was faithful even more than Moses was. We don't need another priest. We have Jesus Christ. Sometimes you might be having conversations with people who have been accustomed to the Catholic faith. Chicagoland is full of a lot of Catholics. Some of you are former Catholics. We heard from Joe this morning. He grew up as a Catholic, and he thought, if you heard his testimony, that the closest way to be with God was to be a priest, an earthly priest. Sometimes in these conversations with Catholics, we Protestants, that's what we would fall into in terms of church history, we Protestants sometimes say things when asked, well, Pastor Phil, is he, is he not your priest? Like, no, 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 we don't have priests. We're Protestants. That's actually, like, true. Yes, I'm not your priest. Please don't call me Priest Phil. And I am married, which most priests in the Catholic Church don't get married. So I'm breaking all kinds of rules for the priesthood. But it would be more precise if you did not say, we don't have a priest. We have pastors. You should say, we have one priest. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we put all of our hope and our attention and our eyes on that priest and not pastors on this earth. So friends, I want you to consider this. Why? Why in the world might Jesus be the great, great 
priest, the greatest of all priests. And if you're a note taker, and even if you're not a note taker, today might be a day to start. I am going to give you a long list of reasons why Jesus is so great. Why is he the great, great priest? Reason number one. This is like, if you want to think about different ammunitions that are coming down at you, there's like the shotgun blasts. Well, this is like machine gun all over the place. So one after another. First reason why Jesus is so great and the greatest and final priest is he passed through the heavens. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. What does this mean? It means that what the priests were trying to do as they stepped into the outer court, then the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies was a just a picture of what it would be like when Jesus Christ would step through the first atmosphere and then the eternal uh, or then the sky up above and then the third and final heaven. We've talked about this in our heaven series that most biblical scholars and passages of scripture, there's, there's multiple heavens, but these heavens are talking about the sky, and it's talking about the stars, and it's talking about the place where God dwells. That's the third heaven. And we know that when Jesus died, he rose again. And when he rose again, he ascended into heaven and never died again. And as he ascended, he shot up through the sky, he shot up through the stars, and they couldn't even see him anymore. And there Jesus dwells in heaven forever. If you're wondering, where's Jesus? He is with God in that place that is called the third heaven or the heavens where God dwells. He is in that place. In other words, Jesus right now is in the fulfillment of what the Holy of Holies was always pointing to be. That's reason number one. Jesus passed through the heavens. Reason number two, he passed through the heavens. Passed. You don't see it because you don't understand perfect tense and it's not in the English. But you could say it this way. He entered the heavens and stayed there forever and ever. He will be with God and dwell with him in the heavens until he brings heaven back to earth. But he will always be with God in heaven forever. It, is a, it starts to happen and continues to happen forever. What's the significance of that? It means that he stayed in the Holy of Holies. He did not go in the temple and then out of the temple and change his garment and then not change his garment. He didn't have to wash himself and then rewash himself to get in and out and all of these. He stayed. In fact, chapter 1, verse 3 says he sat down. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says the main point that we're talking about here in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is our great, great priest. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Do you get the picture? The priests were never sitting down when they went in the Holy of Holies. Then all the people would start yanking on them. Yeah, you're going to die. I don't hear the bells ringing anymore. What's, what's, what's going on in there? I don't, I don't hear the, the jingling. He's supposed to go in and out, in and out. His life's on the line. Not Jesus. He goes into the presence of God and he sits down and he stays. 
Reason number three, Jesus is fully God. That's why he's the great, great priest, because he is the God priest. Look at what verse 14 says. He passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is fully God as he takes on human flesh, which is why they put Jesus next to Son of God. All through this passage and passages we've looked at already in chapter 2 are trying to help us understand that God, Jesus, is both God and man in perfect harmony. So reason number three is that Jesus is fully God. Reason number four is that Jesus is fully man. Notice the way the emphasis on this being man is helpful when we understand that Jesus is a priest. Jesus is fully man, therefore, in verse 15 of chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Because he is fully man, he has suffered and been tempted in every way that you and I have. This makes him a good priest because a priest is to identify and represent his people. If Jesus never becomes fully man, then he can't represent his people. That's us, and we need him to become fully man. We are his people that he made a sacrifice for. This shows the glories of Jesus' compassion. The scriptures here use the word that he suffered with when it talks about being made like uh, sympathizing with our weakness. That word sympathizing is to suffer with someone. I think one of the best ways for you to understand what that's like is when your body has one ailment in one part of the body and the rest of the body is affected by it. They're connected to one another and because they're so united and connected to one another, even though your hand is the one hurting, Your other hand is applying empathy and sympathy because it feels its pain. That's the word here. Jesus feels our pain. He knows what it's like to suffer and have temptation and face all that we have to face as finite humans. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. If Jesus was not fully man, he could never be our priest. Number five. He wasn't just fully man. He was the only perfect man who never sinned. So... The reason why he's the great, great priest is because he never sinned, never once sinned. This is amazing. If you could take one of the points and dwell on this for a long time, I might choose this one. Never once said anything that he wishes he didn't say. Never once had a thought that he should not have thought. Never once had a motivation for an act that externally looked fine, but internally was all kind of weird, selfish ambition, wrought with all kinds of jealousy and envy and hatred. Never, never for a second. And he faced all the same kinds of trials and temptations you and I have, but did it without sin. Sin keeps people out of God's holy of holies and presence, and it must be dealt with to get into the holy of holies. And the whole purpose of getting into the Holy of Holies for the original priest was to deal with sin. 
But Jesus didn't have to deal with his sin. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for his sins like Aaron or his sons or the priestly line of high priests. There was never a moment where Jesus had to make a sacrifice in front, confessing his sins and saying, now let me back into your presence, Father. Look at chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. This he is not talking about Jesus. This he is talking about the high priest in the Old Testament. And they can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, the high priest in the Old Testament is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Not so with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's the great, great priest. And he does not deal any sacrifices for his own sins. Reason number six why Jesus is the great, great priest because he is sitting on God's throne. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits and rules and reigns. He holds everything together by the word of his power. Jesus is on a throne. Reason number 7. Jesus is not just on any throne. Jesus is on a throne that is defined by his grace and his mercy. When you see Jesus on his throne as King of kings and Lord of lords, it is beaming with grace and mercy. How easy would it be for it to be the throne of judgment and wrath and anger and fury for our sin. But that's not what kind of throne he wants us to know. He wants us to know that his throne is shouting grace to you. Jesus is a great, great priest because his throne is defined by its grace. Reason number eight, Jesus, through his grace and mercy beaming throne, helps us. He's a helper. It's the whole point why you should draw near to the throne because you can get help. Have you ever been in financial troubles and wish, man, I wish I had a really rich uncle that I could call on for some help here? Really wealthy relative or a boss or a friend? I'm in a jam. I need help. I need access to power, to finances, to resources. You know, if you have some kind of disease, you want the best doctors. When you're in times of crisis and need, you need access to the people that can help you best. Jesus Christ has access to the most powerful resource in the universe, the throne of God. He helps you from this throne and uses all of his gifts and blessings so that he can help you in the proper time. Which brings us to number nine. The reason why Jesus is a great, great priest is because Jesus perfectly times when he will help you. It says in verse 16 that we should come to this throne of grace and receive mercy in our time of need. Other translations say, at the proper time. I think it's best to understand that we get help from God in his perfect timing. If we only knew what we could see from God's vantage point, then we might stop asking why he hasn't done things at the certain time we want him to. He does them on his timetable, and it's perfect. Because he's sitting on a throne, and he's the ruler and judge of all. Reason number 10 why Jesus is a great, great priest. Drop down to verse 4 of chapter 5. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The reason why Jesus is a great, great priest 
is because he was called by God himself, sent down to the earth from the Father. And in verse 4, then leading into verse 5, we see that the 11th reason why Jesus is a great, great priest is because in verse 5 it says, Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said it to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus Christ is great because he humbled himself instead of exalting himself. This is Philippians 2 language. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of death. That makes Jesus Christ supreme and great. Like getting inspired by people. See athletes and you're inspired by them, or actors or actresses or big blockbuster movies or anything that would just be like, wow, that musician is amazing. We get so quickly enamored and inspired by human beings. Have you ever noticed this? How quickly we see something or learn something, or even our kids, if they're advancing well, like, wow, they might be somebody great. Friends, all of that is just a small echo of you are to see that the greatest thing on earth is somebody taking everything that he has the whole universe at his disposal, and laying it down for your sake. That's the most beautiful, loving, amazing, and awe-inspiring thing that has ever happened on the face of the earth, and every little echo of awe-inspiring moments is just a faint shadow of that one thing that Jesus did by laying down his life, not exalting himself, but saying, I want to lay my life down for you. Jesus is great because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Reason number 12, Jesus is great because he is a priest king. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to say this later in verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We will spend an entire chapter in some time in the next few weeks or so thinking about the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. So I don't need to go into all of this. The whole point is that before there was Moses, before there was Aaron, before there was the Day of Atonement, before there was the animal sacrifices, there was a priest king, and his name was Melchizedek. In the book of Genesis, you find in chapter 16, Abraham making tithes and offerings to a man who is king of Salem, but also a priest of the Most High God, a king and a priest. And Psalm 110 is quoted here as to say, this priest had no family after him. There's no kind of, it's just weird, it's strange, it's, we don't understand what happened before or after. It's kind of this unique guy, so he's like the priest of priests. That's Jesus the priest of priests, the first ever priest that ever comes in the Bible. He is the fulfillment of the Melchizedek line of priest kings to be continued in chapter 7. He'll pick this theme back up. The next reason why Jesus is great is in verse number 7 of chapter 5. Jesus is great because he prayed. And he prayed really hard. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. 
Most people think at this point the author of Hebrews is connecting the Garden of Gethsemane to Jesus' priestly work. Before he offers his life as a sacrifice, he prays. But what does he pray? Here it says that he was heard, and by being heard, it actually means that he was answered, not just like, oh, God heard him because God's omniscient. He hears everything. No, it actually means that he was answered. His prayer was answered. But you're like, no, no, it actually wasn't answered because he said, take this cup from me. But actually, that wasn't the only thing he prayed. He said, not my will, but yours be done. That was heard. That was answered. And the Father's will was accomplished because this will was to crush the Son. And so therefore, the Son was crushed and his prayer was heard. Because again, Jesus wasn't trying to exalt himself. But in his humanness, he did not want to bear the cup. But in his perfect submission to the Father, he bore the cup and drank every last drop. His prayers were heard. Reason number 14, Jesus' prayers were answered because of his reverence. His reverence is highlighted here as the reason for the answer to his prayers. Friends, I don't know about you, but I think something that's hurting our churches and our Christian society is a lack of reverence, casualness. My former pastor would always say, casualness in American churches is seen to be the height of intimacy with God. That's not true in the Old Testament. That doesn't seem to be even true here. Jesus was heard in the Garden of Gethsemane because of his reverence. Is there any reverence to the way we approach God? Or is it just laid down and slacked and cool, Jesus is my homeboy kind of prayer? Friends, this is, this is very common, and if you've not been exposed to it, our churches are full of people that are deceived in thinking that God should be played with lightly. Verse 8. Reason number 15. The reason why Jesus is a great, great priest is because he learned obedience through his sufferings. This does not mean that Jesus was not obedient and he was disobedient. It means that as a child, to a youth, to an adult, and through every trial that he faced, even Satan himself in the wilderness, he endured perfectly to the cross. So he hadn't expa- uh, experienced 40 days of fasting in the wilderness until that happened, and he did, and he passed the test. He hadn't experienced being surrounded by a group of men and having Peter come by his side and say, let's take our swords and cut off their ears and their heads and let's get them. But he passed that test too, even though at that moment he could have called on thousands of angels and have them all wiped out. He passed the test. He learned obedience through his sufferings especially, meaning there was no trial, there was no temptation, and there was no suffering that was too hard for Jesus to not accomplish obedience. So therefore, he is perfect, completely perfect. If that wasn't clear enough already when it said that he was without sin, it's further made clear here. Reason number 16. The reason why Jesus is a great, great priest is because he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. Our salvation is eternal because Jesus is eternal and he lives in eternity and we join with him in the God and man being one together as he brings heaven down to earth. Therefore, our salvation, the end and climactic result of our salvation is eternity with God. 
Reason number 17 why Jesus is great, and by the way, this is the last and final reason, is because he changes your heart to obey him. Notice the way that passage here in verse 9 says that he became perfect and the source of eternal salvation to whom? To all who obey him. So if it's not clear for you sitting here this morning, if you're new to Christianity, if you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, if you're wanting to know, how do I get into heaven? Any of those kind of basic questions. The answer is made clear here that Jesus Christ becomes the source of salvation for all eternity, not on the basis of your obedience. Otherwise, he would have made that clear and said, Jesus becomes the source of something else, and your obedience is the source of your salvation. The source of your salvation is Jesus Christ's priestly work on the cross, sacrificing his blood for your sins as the priest did on the day of atonement. In other words, he saves you in spite of your disobedience, but when he saves you, he makes you obedient as you put your faith alone in Jesus as the source of our salvation. What this passage makes clear is that anybody who truly believes that faith will never be alone. Faith alone is how we get saved, but that faith always is accompanied by obedience to Jesus Christ. So are you a Christian this morning? You will know if you are obediently following Jesus Christ. He is your priest king. He is the God man. He is the one who has performed your eternal salvation. How can we sum all of this up? What makes Jesus Christ so great? Answer, we can now draw near to God. Take all of these 17 reasons and put them in one simple answer. And it goes like this. God and man were separated because of our sin. And therefore, we could not be in his eternal rest we could not dwell in the holy of holies of God's presence because our sin has separated us from God. Therefore, all throughout the Old Testament Jewish history, there was small little shadows and glimpses and pictures of what it would be like for God and man to be back together again. So there you had the temple and you had the holy of holies. But what Jesus Christ has done was to say those small pictures and shadows has come all to fruition as he becomes our priest king, as he dies on a cross for sins as he rises again from the dead, as he ascends into heaven and passes through the heavens and as he sits down at the right hand of the Father on high, there is now forever a priest and an access to the Father now. Not later, not once a year, not a few times on that one day once a year. Every moment of every single day, there is access to the Holy of Holies for you. That, my friends, is incredibly good news. If you have any desire to be with God, and that's what you were made for. That's what the longing in your heart is, is trying to tell you. I'm made for something great. That greatness is God. And you can't stand in his great holy presence because of your sin. So turn to Jesus. Put your faith and trust in Jesus and draw near to Jesus. Because he will give you help in your time of need. One of the measures of whether you are a mature or an immature Christian is whether or not when you sin, you start running away from God or running to Jesus Christ. 
If you have sinned this morning, last night, or this week, and you feel guilty, feel shameful, feel like I'm embarrassed to confess this, take it to Jesus. Draw near to his throne of grace. He gives mercy and help in your time of need. Do you have needs this morning? Do you need help? Friend, I would hope you see your helplessness, your need for a savior, and your need for a priest king, the greatest of all priests. This is good news that we can draw near with confidence, with boldness, every single day, even today, even now. Friend, I would urge you as we close out our service this morning, that as we take the Lord's Supper, use that time to draw near to Jesus. Let's pray together.